This is the Marketing for Learning podcast, the only podcast in the world that's guaranteed to increase your knowledge, skills, and capabilities when it comes to marketing for learning. Plus, there's a gratuitous amount of pineapples. You're welcome. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Marketing for Learning podcast. You have a special snack for your ear holes today. You're joined by me and Hannah Wadhams today. Hello, Hello right? everyone. You did. Don't worry. It's only nine months until it's Clark. And if you manage to say Clark wrong, there's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but it's uh, nearly your three-year work anniversary, and I still sometimes pronounce your last name wrong. Please don't hate me. <laughs> Makes me sad. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> are you all right? Yeah, I'm all good. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Sunny, sunny day out there. So I can't really complain. We haven't got the sun down south. We've had rain all morning. Oh, that's rare. Well, move rare. to the northeast. The weather is uh, <laughs> once uh, in a blue moon better than the south. <laughs> but I'm sure people don't want us to do the typical Brit thing of talk about the weather. No. Well, look. <laughs> It's part it's part of how we bond as humans in the UK, isn't it? But yes, I agree. You haven't tuned into the Marketing for Learning podcast to understand the minutiae of the British weather. So what are we talking about today? So me and Han got our heads together and started to think of some interesting episodes or things that we thought you guys would find particularly useful. And some of the insights that we wanted to bring today is really around the discussions that we're having directly with employees at our customers. Uh, organizations. And so we do a lot of discovery when we build out our marketing strategies and our campaigns. And a big part of that is actually speaking directly with those who are undertaking learning and who are being marketed to. And I don't know about you, Han, but I've definitely found some commonalities across the board. There's There are definitely always you know deviations and differences on an organizational level, but there, I think there are some definitely some synergies as well. Are you observing the same? Absolutely. And I think over time as well, like you said, we've done this with a number of clients now. I've kind of found a few tricks as well to share with people to get the most out of the discovery process because you feel like you're having the same conversation 10 times and it's because you are. You're just talking to a different person at the end. So actually keeping yourself organized and knowing the right things to ask and probably out the right answers makes the world of difference to your marketing outputs. So the discovery phase is absolutely critical. So as well as talking about things we've learned, I think we should share some of our top tips as well. Sure. So I, I guess that's a really great place to start, you know, in, in typical Ashley fashion, there is no structure to this podcast. Um, it might be actually good to define specifically why why are we doing discovery? What's the purpose of that? What are the kind of deliverables or outputs that we're anticipating from a robust discovery period? Yeah, so we say discovery and we're like, oh, that's really obvious, isn't it? We're discovering stuff, but what are we actually looking into? We talk to a range of people and the learners aren't the only people we talk to. Um, for this podcast, I'm going to stick to calling them learners. I know I put a post up the other day saying don't do it. I'm going to... You hypocrite. <laughs> He's a hypocrite. She actually does eat chocolate and drink hot drinks too. Oh, no, <laughs> I don't. No, no. <laughs> Right. So we don't only talk to the learners. We talk to a lot of stakeholders, people within the L&D team and people in the wider organisation. But when we're talking to the learners, so to our target audience, we're trying to understand them on that human level. We're trying to get under the skin. So often in our discovery process, we don't talk about learning until at least halfway, if not three quarters of the way through. I want to know who they are, how they operate day to day. 
What is it that gets them out of bed in the morning and gets them involved with work? Why do they like their job? What is it they find hard about working at X organization? And really ask them these emotional questions. In the last discovery I did, somebody actually went to me, oh, that's a big question, and just stared at me for what felt like about 10 minutes. I think it was about 10 seconds. But I want to get under the skin. I want to understand them. Because we can't market effectively to our target audience unless we know who they are. So that's the primary purpose of the discovery phase when we're talking to your learners, is to understand who they are as human beings. Yeah, and just to complement to that, I think there is a, another layer, which is to give us context or to give anyone who's doing this or is, is going to undertake any level of marketing strides. You know, discovery is about understanding the lay of the land and getting, you know, a really in-depth understanding of the organizational culture of which learning plays a role. Of course, we know it's going to feed into the EVP and things like that, but it we need to kind of understand all those emotional drivers and all the stuff you've just beautifully articulated, particularly around the persona piece mm-hmm. and actually identifying who these people are and how our marketing can connect with them. That's one piece of the pie. But the other piece of the pie is actually understanding almost like a, a, a competitor landscape analysis. Like, you know, wh- what else are we competing with? What level of noise is going on in the organization? What sort of change management projects are going on at the moment? You know, one of my clients recently was, they were launching a learning platform, but there was about four other systems being launched in the organization. And as a consequence, you know, we've got to factor that into our marketing in terms of my word, there's a lot of noise here. Uh, do we wait until that noise settles? Do are you know, really, if we're going to have to go at this specific time, that's important to know because how we're going to develop strategic interventions and the, the type of comms that we might do and the content that sits within a, a strat or a campaign strat is going to shift once we have that context. So it's a really important part of the process, isn't it? Absolutely. And I actually think, again, there's a third layer. Discovery helps us as an external agency, or you if you're doing this internally yourself, remove the biases that L&D clearly have. We love to think in L&D that everyone's thinking about learning all the time, and they're not. They're really, really not. They're definitely not. We love to think that We've put out some emails so everybody knows what our learning platform is. And one of my current clients, <laughs> this discovery process, I think I counted six different descriptions of the same platform because nobody quite knew what it was called or what its purpose was. It was all very confusing. So that helps us as well. It, it, as you just said, it gives us a really clear description of the landscape and it removes the L&D bias from the situation because you're talking to people who don't have the primary goal of learning. Yeah. So essentially what discovery is, is almost like a capturing of as much information as we can around the organization, you know, organizational sentiment, learner sentiment. Um, I didn't realize there were so many layers to discovery. It (laughs) truly is an onion. Um, But, you know, really the piece that's super important is the dissemination of that afterwards, right? Like what are, what does all this data mean? Like it's really all good and well getting lots of qualitative and quantitative data. Never remember which one it is. Economics degree, please remind us. Quants is numbers. Quals Thank is, you. Like the words. I'm not going to try to say the words though because I always get those wrong in the masterclass. And I'm like, qualitative, is there extra T's in there? Quantitative? I always spell it wrong. And so we need to get, 
those two different types of data, but we need to analyze it, right? So removing that biases, you and I have said this many times, the biggest challenge L&D has is removing that learning lens. So make sure you do that when you're assessing this data and not trying to point the data in a direction that gives you the answers you want. Be prepared to hear some answers that you don't want. Um, and I think there, you know, that might take us on nicely to, you know, what are we, what are we hearing, but also like top tips. I don't know if top tips should go first, actually, because, you know, if you're going to undertake this process, what, how do you do it best? Mm. Um, my first one, and I, I apologize if I'm stealing one from you, which I expect similar thinking <laughs> patterns mean that I have, um, is having someone that's not you do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So we often find that our clients will maybe join the call initially, introduce us, give some context to the people that are there, like who the heck this random stranger is. Um, And then they bounce off because people don't really feel so comfortable being as candid and as authentic and honest as they maybe like to be when the person or the function that they're potentially criticizing is sat in front of them staring, going, did you really say that? That's really hurt my feelings, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And I think I've had some conversations post-discovery with clients. So I've said, these are the kind of questions I've asked. This is the responses I get. And L&D wants to challenge people's responses. We are asking for people's personal opinions in the discovery phase. It's not the time for you to go, well, no, actually, our platform's brilliant and you're wrong. Um, So if you are doing it yourself, if you can't get an external person, Don't let your opinions or your know-how even, if you know your platform's brilliant and they haven't discovered it yet, don't bring that into it. That's not what we're doing at this stage. We just want to know their thoughts, their feelings and their opinions. Yeah, so essentially we need to be objective with their subjective opinions. Absolutely. Um, And also then, leading on from that quite nicely, one of my top tips is almost to adopt, and I giggle to myself when I think about it because I think it's quite like a therapist mindset. So it's like, how does that make you feel? And obviously I don't say that, but often we talk to people about like, what's your biggest barrier at the work in work? What's the one thing stopping you getting involved? And we ask questions like that. And everyone always says time. So I started finding myself going, okay, well, if we remove the time factor, what is it you would do instead? Or what, it, what else is it that's stopping you? And then you get into, and normally the answer then comes back to still it's causing them a time barrier. But you get into the primary problem. So I'll give an example from my recent uh, discovery process I went through. I, I said that. I was like, well, if we remove the time barrier, what is it? And they're like, oh, but we've got a lot of projects. And when one project ends, I go straight on to another project. And I just feel like so much is being asked of me. I don't have time to prioritize myself. And as much as it still ended with that, I don't have time to prioritize myself. You understand then the different pressures. They're not just saying, I ain't got time for that. I don't care. I then had a really clear picture. These people really did care about their job. They really did want to do well at work and their projects were their primary focus and they were so committed to delivering the best possible service to their clients that they were putting themselves on the back burner. That painted a much better picture of the landscape of learning and sentiment towards learning within a certain demographic for me just by challenging them a little bit on, okay, well, if I took away that time pressure, then what? Yeah. So again, the key is, and and this is a strong interview tactic that isn't specific to discovery by any means when we're doing the qualitative data capturing stuff, but ask open questions, right? So we have like a, we share it with the masterclass, but we've got like a big list of potential questions that we could ask people. 
you know, you don't need, you need to have a slightly unstructured approach. You've got to let the discovery kind of naturally flow because if you try and be quite structured with it, you end up cutting people off, stopping people speaking up and that can actually have an adverse effect, I think. So you've got to kind of be quite open to, well, ask open questions, but also be open to allowing the conversation to flow where it naturally goes. But then on the flip side to that, if you're talking to quite a global audience and you're talking to quite a variety of people that perhaps you don't know very well, having questions prepared, I actually found in one of the recent discovery sessions I did, it was a really, really global audience. English was all of their primary working language, but it wasn't their primary, like their first language. I had the questions on the screen. I was jumping between the questions. They didn't mind that I was going, actually, no, I'm going to flip ahead. I'm going to go to this question now. But having the question on the screen in text helped them clarify what I was actually asking them. It avoided any, look, we all know I've got a weird and wonderful accent. It avoided any confusion about the questions I was asking. It gave them the clarity they needed so they could give me their full opinion. So having something like that, particularly when you're looking at a global audience, is super, super useful because there's no doubt they know exactly what you're asking and they can give you the answer that is for that question. And then probably then some, because everyone does go on and carry on explaining how they feel. Yeah. I mean, if you have a weird and wonderful accent, I have no words to describe <laughs> mine, first and foremost. Um, but, you know, I, I think so for me, I guess the takeaway from that is be prepared. You have your structure in the back end, but they don't need to know what that is. You know, so you you need some sort of preparation. You need to take into account the potential needs or barriers that you might have with language or location, delivery, if it's digital versus face-to-face or whatever, that's all stuff you want to take into account before you you undertake your discovery. And also like who's there, you know, yeah. I'll always, I always look at the people that I know are there. If I have that level of detail on LinkedIn, you'll have a little bit more knowledge if you're doing it internally, but understanding again, like, okay, if I've got most people in NORAM, but a couple of people in Germany and someone in India, like we would never do them like that because the time zones would never work, but you get my point. <laughs> But ultimately, you know, we need to we need to make them feel as comfortable and relaxed and do what we can to take ownership and, and steer the conversation. But without without kind of closing it down and making it too structured that it feels like they're suddenly in some training session or a workshop yeah. or something like that. I also think there's probably a point that we have overlooked because we've been doing this for so long. Taking notes getting keeping like how you're actually going to capture that information other than storing it in your brain because if your discovery session goes on for 45 minutes to an hour you're not going to remember what was said in the first five minutes in enough detail for it to be helpful for you I found if you ask people oh do you mind if I record this that adds a filter to them because they know somebody else can see it so I actually prepare my notes beforehand so again I have my questions written out I have like um, kind of like a key of the people that are on the call. So I write everyone's initials rather than their full names. And I try I try to find the quickest way of just jotting down things to remember and to remind myself. And then straight after the discovery call, I write all that up to make sure I'm adding the extra detail that's needed. It's tempting to record them so you can go back time and time again. But do be aware that sometimes that makes people hold back a little bit because they're scared of who... Who will get access to that recording? Who's going to listen to this? Whose hands is it going to fall into? What if I'm saying I hate learning and then I get sacked? Like they want to yeah. make sure that they're in a safe environment. 
Yeah, I think it's a, val- a valid point. And, you know, you're not going to get, you know, I'm just saying be open, keep it open, keep it authentic. You're absolutely going to stymie me that, I think, by making people feel like they're on the spot. And like you said, if oh, my manager could see this the best, oh, they're the best ever, you know, I, you're not. Yeah. It then creates a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy or it's a bit of a misnomer because you just don't really know if you're getting real authentic answers back from people. Absolutely. And if we're not getting the truth, it's not going to actually help our marketing because we'll end up pushing out stuff that actually doesn't resonate with them. So there's no point in making it harder to yourself down the line. Yeah. So we got to get this this first stage right, really, haven't we? Mm -hmm. Was there any other tips in your list or have we kind of covered them all? I think we've covered them all. I think having a really effective way of being prepared, but also being prepared that that won't go to plan and capturing the information is essential because you sometimes these discovery sessions can take a lot of your time but it's really worth it but you want to get as much as you possibly can from it yeah so I guess that takes us on nicely to the commonalities or think things things that have surprised us in discoveries that that's one um maybe it isn't surprising but some stuff has definitely been to me there's two in particular that really stick out for me um the first one is you know when you when you actually start asking audiences about the learning opportunities that are available to them. I have legitimately sat in discovery sessions with learner cohorts where they'll be talking about a learning program or a type of learning that's available to them. And someone else on the call will actually interrupt them and go, wait, we have that. We Mm -hmm. have, we have that that's available to us. What? So, (laughs) you know, something that I have seen many times is an absolute lack of clarity around what is actually available from a learning perspective. Some people, some organizations, some learning functions rely heavily on the LMS or the learning platform to be the the house and the home of their learning proposition, but oftentimes things externally from that, whether it's LinkedIn learning and they haven't pulled it through, or like one of our clients does some like more like kind of not MBAs, but that, you know, really quite more like Mm -hmm. external type stuff that does not sit within the LMS really good leadership training and things like that that are brought in from external providers. People don't know where to find it. There's yeah. there's no single source of truth in many, many organizations and nowhere that I learn. Like if I want to go on Netflix and see what what's available, there's no location like that in yeah. most organizations for people to go and browse themselves. I'm very aware that if they don't know it exists, they're not going to go browse themselves. But ew, if we're going to start we doing marketing. Point them. Yeah. Yeah. I also think one of my big takeaways is probably what a lot of listeners are thinking right now. They're probably thinking, oh, well, I've got a learning platform and it has everything in there. We have all these different content libraries and they can access whatever they want. And a real big commonality I've seen is that's too overwhelming. There's Mm. too much content. People don't know what they want. They don't know what's good and what isn't. They don't know where the hierarchy is. They don't know what they should be getting involved with. Is this just something they've stumbled across on from LinkedIn Learning is not relevant to them? Obviously, other platforms are also available. But it's it's how overwhelming when you do have a learning platform or an LXP or an LMS or whatever it is, if you're pushing loads and loads and loads of content in there, more isn't better. It, I, we've all had that feeling when we sit down to watch Netflix, if we stick with a Netflix example, and we spend longer scrolling through to find something than we do actually watching anything, 
that's how your people are feeling with your learning platforms if there's too much content in there and if they've only given themselves half an hour to do some learning you don't want 25 minutes or the whole half hour being spent trying to find something so Mm. I think we really need to bear that in mind how overwhelming it feels and how perhaps learning actually needs to be made a bit more user intuitive and easier for our people to actually access the content that they want. Yeah, you know, I mean, this has been a discussion in our industry for a while that just throwing more content libraries at a learning platform doesn't solve an engagement problem. It actually does just make more noise and inundate the learner. And, you know, actually, I've had similar conversations where a lot of individuals have highlighted to me that similar things that they come to the learning pl- if you get them to the learning platform they get there and stuff that they see isn't in the right language or the right region so there's a lot of administration and curation stuff that's not happening for people and it's really disruptive to the learning experience which means that you're losing their trust which means that no matter how mint your marketing is they're not going to keep on going the other side of that that a few organizations in particular that i've discussed with have, have highlighted is because we rely so heavily on this curation of content now so we're bringing in all these different you know modular type learning opportunities and there's just so much in our learning platforms people don't actually really know what they should be doing so say if I'm you know an employee who's worked in an organization for a couple of years maybe I want to become a manager I've done the PDP my PDP with my manager I've highlighted that that's a skill area that I want to develop most people can't just go to their learning platform and actually identify a pathway that is certified by the organization to say, if you want to become a manager in our business, these are the skills that we absolutely want to see you develop before you'll even be considered for a promotion. Mm -hmm. There is no, in many cases, there is not a lot of steer and not a lot of guidance for people in terms of how do you take the next step? What does the next step look like? Managers aren't none the wiser also, you know, a lot of them said to me the same, like a lot of their managers don't really know what's available. So they can't, even when they're having those PDPs and those those performance management conversations, they don't know where to direct them to. So we just have a massive problem with clarity and, and um, being more concise with what's available to people. Absolutely. And I think again, one of my points um, was going to be about the managers and about leadership. Managers and leaders can make or break your learning, regardless of their involvement with your team. Yep. I, With one of my recent discovery sessions, you could tell the people that had a manager that was very, yet yeah, personal development's really important, you should be involved in this, and knew what was going on in the organization, so knew where to push their teams to. You had another group of managers that had that mindset, but because the comms wasn't there and the communication and the marketing to that level of people wasn't there they were pushing people externally um one person on one of the calls I did didn't know that they had a LinkedIn learning subscription and had actually gone and tried to get one independently because they didn't realize it was all through the same platform because their manager didn't realize it and then you have those that are just blockers and think that learning's a waste of time and it was really clear to me in a couple of the recent discoveries I've done that nobody's ever tried to market to that person. Nobody's ever tried to influence their opinion. Nobody's tried to persuade them that learning's actually going to help them for X, Y, and Z reasons. And that's a big gap that I think a lot of L&Ders are avoiding. We moan a lot about managers. We talk about how they're blockers. Let's do something about it rather than just shunning them and saying, oh, they're never going to get involved. 
Yeah. I mean, a lot of the campaigns I've done with clients have identified exactly the same thing. And and oftentimes, whilst they won't be a persona in the true sense of the word, they will definitely be a target audience that will be looking to engage in, in different ways. So almost treating them more like business partners and in terms of they're a massive channel for us that we overlook. You know, we think of channels as like email and teams and Yammer and our offices and our posters and our communal areas and places like that. But actually, these people are an incredible conduit for your message. And if you get it right, they can be huge amplifiers for what it is that you're trying to do. Or they can be massive resistors. So, you know, don't overlook them by any means because, yeah, I've absolutely identified the same the same issue. And, you know, really when we're building out learning campaigns, you know, my vision always is that we should be looking for a top-down and a bottom-up cascade, right? So it shouldn't just be coming from leadership down, but and we shouldn't just be trying to target leaders. We should be looking at this kind of flow of information that's going up and down the organization. And we can't do that unless we're looking at, almost like an organization like a ladder and where the rungs and where do we need to be and how do we need to adapt our message for those different rungs of people? Because ultimately the what's in it for me for a manager is going to be really different than for a learner because actually they'll benefit from their team being more comprehensive, productive, whatever qualities you want to identify. And again, leadership, the what's in it for me will be different again. So we need to make sure that we're positioning our marketing content to meet those needs too. Yeah. Also, another thing I've noticed, kind of based on leadership, but based on that different hierarchy in the business, um, my one of my current clients, and I know one of them's an avid listener, so she'll know I'm talking about her. They're um, basically marketing. Leadership. Hi, Emma. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're marketing leadership training. And we're in leadership training for all, though. So it's not just for leaders or for managers. It's for everybody. And we're in quite an oxymoral situation. Leaders are kind of like, well, I'm beyond learning and I haven't got time for it, so I'm not going to pay attention to it. And then the more junior staff are like, well, it's leadership training. It's nothing to do with me. I'm not a leader. And it's like, no, we need you all doing it. So actually, there's quite a commonality there between more senior people kind of shunning learning. And I've noticed that with a lot of my clients that they're like, yeah, learning's important for other But people. not for me. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. not for me. And then the more junior employees are like, oh, well, I don't know what I'm doing. And I just assume that's not for me because nobody's told me to do it. So I'm not going to do it. And then we end up in this whole situation where you're putting out a lot of messaging, but because you haven't targeted it to their specific persona types and their specific wants, needs, fears, pain points and all of that good stuff, nobody thinks it's for them. They all know about it, but nobody thinks it's for them. So I think that's quite common as well. I'd say I've had like three or four different clients where I've noticed the leaders are like, yeah, great, love learning for other people. And the <laughs> junior, maybe like manager level downwards, are like, yeah, I'd love to. Tell me how. <laughs> Please show me where to go and make make my life easier. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting that because we didn't discuss this beforehand, guys, it wasn't like me and Ham were like, hey, what point should we cover? We genuinely haven't prepped for this, have we? We've just no. this, we picked a, a title and that's it. Yeah. And so it's interesting to see that whilst we're working independently, it, a lot of the time, actually, on our own client project work, we're still identifying much of the same stuff that's yeah. just coming up time and time again. So I have a question for you, because there's something that I, that always has come up in my conversations, especially with clients that are highly regulated. What do learners say about compliance? Because I know people listening will, you know, and it's pushback that we've had. We don't get it so much anymore, I must admit, but it used to be a big discourse for us is like, well, where does compliance fit in all of this? Like mm-hmm. compliance is mandatory, it's obligatory, it's operational. 
it's part of our learning function, nevertheless. So I, I have my own thoughts of what I've seen and discussed, but I'd be curious to to hear yours too. Do you do you have discussions about compliance? What are what are learners saying about it? They never overtly say it because to the target audiences, the learners in organizations, learning is learning. They don't really see it as anything different. But there's often complaints, I'd say, about all training being the same and very boring. And I think that's L&D almost doing themselves a disservice. So they've gone through a compliance course that they have to redo every year. So that's a burden on them anyway. And then when they do decide to do something ever so slightly different, if it's in the same format as your compliance training and it's as boring as your compliance training, they're going to switch off straight away. So I do think compliance training is kind of tarring the rest of learning. Um, but yeah, learners find it boring, but nobody's surprised about that. Then they're, they're not interested in compliance at all, but they know they have to do it. Interesting, because that was my attitude as well. That was my thought process and definitely some conversations I've had compounded that. But then I did discovery, particularly with a couple of organizations that were highly regulated um, either, you know, financial services, insurance, that type of area. And the employee attitude was completely different to what you've just described. So in organizations where compliance features heavily as a learning offering, I, you got to do this shit, crack on. I found it really interesting that the learners were very adept at not conflating compliance with learning. So compliance was like in this little separate box that was like, this is stuff we've got to do. They had they had their issues with the foibles of it. Like I get sent stuff that I've already completed. I get sent stuff for regions that I'm not even in. And therefore, I don't need to have those regulatory uh, boxes ticked. But for the most part, on that, particularly in those sectors, it was quite interesting to see that actually learners got that le- like compliance was just something that was. And it wasn't forming part of part of the learning pie and in, in, in the kind of truest sense of the word so I, I that's why I wanted to ask you because that my attitude or my thoughts were exactly what you just described and actually they kind of proved me wrong and I was like oh this is like blow my mind because I've been like sat here for a decade in this industry thinking compliance is ruining everything and it needs to go to operations and actually it shouldn't sit in L&D at all oh maybe we just need to have a dialogue about it I wonder if there's a bit of a a pattern and we'd have to do a lot more research this is just my ideas people don't quote me on this if there's like a commonality between those really highly regulated companies like you said like banking and finance and they know that compliance is something they have to do versus those industries that compliance training is more health and safety stuff that the business wants them to do every year and they see it's completely pointless it's not really relevant to their job maybe there's a difference there because those organizations where they know their job depends on it, I know the finance industry is really, really regulated and they have to do it and they can't do their jobs. The motivators there, right? You know, if you, yeah, when you really boil it down, the latter that you just described, uh, so an organization where, I don't know, let's look at a, a food and beverage company where they have a lot of like uh, front frontline workers, they're, they're going to do health and safety, like flips and spills, kosh, heavy lifting, how to lift a box properly, all that stuff. All the stuff that's in inverted commas to safeguard the employee, what it's actually doing is safeguarding the business. And no one's dumb and everybody knows that. So they reluctantly participate in these activities. Whereas I think you're absolutely correct. The motivation for those that work in highly regulated industries is that actually 
I have to do these things because I can't do my job if I don't. Whereas the the what's in it for me isn't there. Yeah. For other compliance thing. You've absolutely nailed that. Yeah. And then when the what's in it for me is not there, then they just bundle it all in together and it's all just pointless. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I, th- I don't it's know. It's like that campaign. I'm sure you've mentioned it on the podcast before. That oh, you I really want to do it. I told the masterclass delegates about that last week. If anybody wants to do a campaign around acknowledging the fact that compliance is a bit shit and we've just got to do it anyways, uh, my gut instinct is that it's going to work really, really well. We might have to change the, the language depending on your organization, but <laughs> ag- acknowledging it for what it is and having a dialogue with your people about that is 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 acknowledging the elephant in the room instead of being like, no, it's great, everything's mint, which is what we've tried to kind of do. Like, oh, yeah, let's gamify compliance. It'll be great. No, just actually treat your audience like human beings because they're not dumb and have that discourse and that dialogue with them. So, yeah, so um, I'm on the lookout for a client who wants to do a compliance. A brave, bold, compliant. <laughs> bold, big bullshit compliance campaign <laughs> it's got legs I'm confident um but yeah no I, I think that that's you know that's really good marketing for me is exactly that though like it it acknowledges what people are actually thinking and talking about right you know the things that really are on the nose and 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 hit the hit the nerves then yeah. we're back to the emotional drivers aren't we we're back to exactly what creates resonance with people so yeah it would work it would we just need to find an organization that's brave enough to do it yeah I mean I must I I don't know about you I I can't think of any occasions where I've actually done marketing for compliance initiatives interesting oh no no me either we don't think we need to because it's mandatory so yeah we need to do marketing for it right the mandatory sticker on it Mm. Well, I feel like we are deviating. So yes, uh, (laughs) one final call for the the compliance campaign. Um, But yeah, I mean, you know, for me, I think this discovery piece is really, really an intrinsic part of marketing. It's something that we would do externally if we were working in-house in an organization, we would do well, I'm not a huge fan of competitor landscape because I think if you're looking at what competitors are doing, you're behind them. That doesn't make sense to me. But a lot of people do do competitor research. But for me, it's more about understanding the market, understanding the lay of the land and seeing where you fit within that, you know, combining that with your understanding of your audiences, what they want, what what they want to hear, what they need. You know, this is precisely what discovery helps you identify. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that competitive piece that you just spoke about in L&D actually is quite relevant. I agree with you. It's there. Um, but in L&D, so anyone listening to this, do look at what you're competing with, because you're probably not competing with another like-for-like learning platform. You're competing with people's lives. Um, so you do need to bear that in mind, and that will help you paint a better picture too. Yeah, I mean, you're competing. I think the competitor analysis in L&D is really important because it's probably not something that we've done before, whereas I suppose I just found it tiresome working at a learning technology vendor like, oh, what competitors do we have? I know who our competitors are. We don't need to do this. In every single industry I've worked in, it's been the same. If you're looking at your competitors, you're probably moving backwards. Um, I remember my first job, we used to showing my age a bit we used to cut out the mag- uh, magazine adverts because we still did them wow. um and we'd say i thought you were young how old are you i've been in marketing 10 years on saturday Jeez, Louise. saturday is I my don't... 10 year anniversary you know your marketing anniversary yes i do 
It was the 1st of July. It's quite an easy date Nerd. to remember. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. I digress. Um, we used to look at them a lot. And then one day, um, a lady called Karen Heaven came in, head of marketing, and she was like, why are we doing that? I don't care what they're doing. We're doing better. I don't care what they're doing. And we stopped it from that moment. And it was a game changer because then we started thinking of our own ideas. We were looking elsewhere for inspiration. We weren't just trying to keep up with the Joneses. Mm-hmm. We were doing different yeah um, you see that a lot in our industry though don't you yeah. it's it's a freaking echo chamber I mean when I I would say like the first business that I really made an impact from a marketing perspective was MindClick back in the day and hmm. you know we kind of went from nowhere to somewhere after like a year's marketing and it was it was incredible to see other vendors start to almost replicate what we were doing and it was you know like well you're not going to you're not going to get the same traction because someone's kind of already doing that. Like you've got to kind of be creative in your approach. And I appreciate we're completely deviating from the point here, but <laughs> I guess the, the point to be made is competitor analysis has its place in, in the learning world and what we're discussing because that context piece is really, really important. Mm-hmm. But externally, when things are moving so much more quickly, your audience isn't as fixed as it is in a learning landscape it's yeah. you know actually being incredibly disruptive is really important in saturated markets so we can't be looking to other people and seeing what they're doing because that just puts us directly behind behind them and like you said you, you don't come up with your own ideas because you think well that's a good one I'll do that like do you remember that promo video I did for another vendor that then about six different ones came out that were almost yeah. identical within a year it was just like I don't why yeah. would you do that I just had the funniest idea that I think we should do Ash we should record a video, just the two of us, not share it with anyone, of our predictions for learning tech next year. And I bet we get them spot on. Okay, I'd like to do that. Only if we were like, almost like a like a time capsule. A time capsule. And then we can, <laughs> after next year's learning tech, prove that that's what our industry's like. I think we should do that. Okay, I love that. We will do that. Um, <laughs> We'll do the time capsule recording and we'll revisit that next year. I love that. Whoa, what Absolutely a nothing to do with discovery, though. <laughs> So come back in a year to find that out. And this is why we come with a subject, ladies and gents, because otherwise this is the sort of meandering drivel that you get from us. So, yeah, I mean, it might be a, a beautiful time to, to to cease this conversation before it deviates further from the... But initial- what we are saying, discovery is really important. Invest the time into it. Don't go off on a meander like we just have. Make sure you're actually trying to find out what your people think and feel um, because that's what's going to help your marketing in the long term. You can't skip discovery. We have a lot of clients being like, oh, why do we have to do that? It's really important. It's what all of your marketing is going to be based on. Yep. Agreed. And make sure you ask the right questions to get the right answers. Very important. Right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Han. Um, I don't know Perhaps. when we recorded a last podcast together, but I'm going to hazard a guess. Why we don't like do it? Eight months or something. So let's not leave it so long. <laughs> and we try not to talk as much waffle next time. <laughs> oh, do you know which one it was? It was the um, campaigns one where we talked about our favorite campaigns. Oh, that was great. That was like well. January though. Yeah. Oh, it was dear. a great podcast. It was. Did you, you <laughs> say so yourself? <laughs> oh yes and one final thing guys uh we did a little post or, or a separate little uh I don't know if you I don't know what that was really I, I think I was going a bit crazy with that thing I released around voting for the British podcast awards yeah yeah I don't know if you listen to it weirdo um 
Anyways, <laughs> we'll put a link to to the to the um voting thing in the show notes because yeah, uh, Catherine very kindly highlighted this to us that you can vote for us. Um, and it's like a listener's choice award, so it's just public vote. But if you find this podcast useful, you're entertained by our absolute dribble um or just want to kind of help give us a thumbs up obviously two ways you can do that one is you know actually give us five stars on apple or spotify but also you know voting for us and spreading the word would be very much appreciated and we're up against some of the like giant podcasts so please vote for us (laughs) so what you're saying is we're never gonna win your optimism is your lack of optimism the last year winner had 60 uh, 600 followers right so please vote for us guys <laughs> uh i don't know if at this point we recognize an exercise in futility when we see one but you know i i appreciate the sentiment yeah, my mum's voted and so did my dad so. <laughs> she's listened to loads of podcast episodes i'm sure which one does she find the most useful was it the shitty first draft <laughs> oh if my dad listened to that one he'd be like you are no longer my daughter stop swearing <laughs> you must resign you cannot work for her <laughs> awkward right i'm calling it and as always thanks so much for your time uh love chatting with you as always so yeah thank you see you later bye how do i stop recording oh stop